0: All right, everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham, and with us this week we have uh, Peter Capote, the host of uh, Friday Night's uh, The World Tonight with Adam Lawless, and we've also got Dylan Wade, who uh, is Elections Daily contributor and also has a podcast, uh, Popcorn Politics, that you can find. Uh, We're really excited to go on this week. We've got a few topics to go over, Uh, so we'll just go ahead and jump right into it. Um, So probably the big news of the week has been the Republican National Convention. We've gone through two days of it so far. And it's definitely been an interesting interesting show of people. Um, as far as things seem to go, it seems to have been at least run fairly competently. Uh, there's been very few speeches that haven't had any redeeming qualities whatsoever. Uh, what comes to mind is the Kimberly Guilfoyle speech is kind of a, uh, a disaster. But the rest of them have been fairly competent in a lot of ways. Um and so, obviously, that's continuing throughout the week. Uh, we've had all sorts of stuff going on. So, I guess i will go ahead and throw it to Peter. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the RNC has progressed so far? Uh, what, what has been the highlight of the of the week? I think you think for the. Uh, I
1: think they've done they've done it very well. I mean, they said they didn't really like the Zoom atmosphere uh, of the Democratic convention, and they've done very well, sort of the traditional convention, just with the COVID obviously guidelines. I think the best speech so far of the week, in my personal opinion, was probably Tim Scott's. Uh, mm-hmm. I think very captivating speech, um, very moving. I think a lot of what this country is in right now, I think, it appealed to, you know, the racial, you know, diversity. You know, I'm a guy from the South who really wasn't supposed to go anywhere. You know, according to him, you know, he was really bad academically in high school, but he moved on you know, with, you know, you know, with success to do so. I think another good speech, maybe not as popular as, um, it was a Cuban American who was talking about his experiences with Cuba. I think not, it wasn't much attention. I thought it was also very captivating. Mm-hmm. It may not be impactful, but I thought it was a very moving speech from an American, you know, hero- heroicist perform, uh, perf- perspective. But I think overall the RNC has been fine. I mean, Obviously tonight will be the big one with the president speaking, and that will be interesting to see what he says in his speech, especially what's happening right now in Wisconsin.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly. What what is your impression on it, uh, Dylan, of someone from the other side of the of the aisle?
2: Um, I, I tend to agree it's largely been competently run. Um I I think it's interesting from a strategy perspective. Um, they definitely seem to largely be leaning into the um, far left fear thing mm-hmm. Um, with almost every speech except maybe Tim Scott and yeah. Nikki Haley to a lesser degree but all of the speeches have really leaned into that and I thought that's been interesting given how Trump ran last time and how he seems to be choosing to run this time
0: yeah they've definitely hammered in on the socialism theme even some of the speeches like you said Nikki Haley um have been really ones that have been uh, very much gone on the attack onto the political left, um, even like non supposedly like speeches from, for example, uh, the woman who had the right to trial legislation. I can't remember her her last name was Harp. Um, mm-hmm. Her speech was entirely about how um, socialism, socialized medicine, or uh, Medicare for all would be bad. Um, so there's definitely that's kind of been a big element of the RNC this week. Uh, I thought also Daniel Cameron's speech has been has pr- been a pretty big highlight. Um, you know, all things considered, he seemed to be over go over pretty well. Uh, one thing that I found interesting was pretty much the absence of most, uh, what you would call populist members of the party. Uh, there have obviously been a lot of people who are from the Trump family or associated with Trump, but there have been very few, if any, people speaking at the convention who've really been going from a specifically the much hyped, uh, Trumpy populism side where, uh, you know, um, more left on economics, more conservative on social issues. That's been basically absent. What are your thoughts on on kind of the the way this has been planned out? Do you think that's a kind of indicative of the future of the party, or is it a strategic mistake on the Republican part?
1: Uh, uh, I'll go. I'll go first. I don't really think it was any you know direction. I just think it was just Trump campaign scheduling. That I mean, yes, Josh Hawley wasn't included. Uh, a lot of the populists weren't, but. Mm-hmm. Do I think it's an overall you know, view of that? No, I think it was just the Trump campaign saying, okay, who's attractive names? We can throw them on for a few nights list." I think there are certain people who have elements of populism in their views that aren't necessarily full-blown populists like Josh Hawley, someone like Tom Cotton, for example. Mm-hmm. A bit populistic, but he's a traditional Republican on defense and most economic matters. So I think there's some mixes of that. I do think... Uh, if there is one element, I think, that even with No populists that was there, it was interesting. It's been a big theme on, from a lot of Republican speakers so far about endless war, which is something that most people wouldn't usually associate with a GOP convention. This is, of mm-hmm. course, the same party that 16 years ago was
0: screaming about how Democrats were unpatriotic during the middle of two wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I and think this that, is a element for people yeah. like, you know, uh, like Matt Gates, like Rand Paul, mm-hmm. so some of the U- Suspects in that regard.
1: Right. Yes, though uh, one interesting w- one who did was a bit of a surprise to hear that from was Richard Garnell or Grenell, the former mm-hmm. uh, ambassador to Germany. Uh, someone who's from the Mitt Romney orbit, uh, former Mitt Romney orbit. But yeah, overall, I don't think it really is an indicative of the future. I think the Republican Party's future, and I've long said it, is there really is no Trumpism. I think it's just Trump gives it up to people who agree with him. So. Whatever that I think the long-term future is, I think it really can't be decided from a convention where the lead man is effectively someone who values loyalty over ideology.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, although I would kind of push back on there being no populace. Um, you mentioned one of them, Matt Gates. I don't like him, mm-hmm. but he well,
0: is – He's yeah. part of the Freedom Caucus, first and foremost. That's more or less the the general orbit, and you do get stuff like that for there. I'm talking about people who want to really like the, specifically the Marco Rubio's and Josh Holly, who really want to change how the economic stuff is run. There's not been a whole lot of um, there's been disagreements in this convention, but economics is not one of them. There's not an area where people are disagreeing on.
2: No, Rubio is actually a bit of a surprising absence. Um, mm-hmm. He's more in that traditional wing that Really got a lot of play this mm-hmm. RNC. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Joni Ernst. Um, the fact that Rubio isn't among them was actually a little surprising to me.
1: Mm-hmm. Hey, I agree with that. I think another surprise, if there really was one, besides that has been a lack, I think of a lot of Republicans, a lot of other big name Republicans, there's been a very lack governors showing up. Traditionally parties like to show off their governors as an example mm-hmm. of why they should lead again. Also the lack of certain GOP senators. I mean, uh, you didn't have, for example, a lot of the Senate caucus speaking. And I get it, sure, there are some who don't like Trump or have asked politely not to be there. But it was a bit of a surprise with some. But yeah, I think Rubio was a bit of a surprise. Um not to see. I think other names that were maybe a little surprising was maybe um Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. He was another – you mm-hmm. would have thought Ted would have been, made an appearance. Um,
0: mm-hmm. uh, Ron DeSantis' is lieutenant governor, Je- yeah. Jeanette Nunez, showed Ron up. Ron DeSantis. But, uh, he, yeah, but he didn't show up.
1: Uh, Rick, Scott. Rick Scott. You
0: know, Those mm-hmm.
1: are three names already, Scott, Rubio, and DeSantis are all rumored twenty twenty four, you know, not, potential candidates. So that is a little interesting that those three were not asked – to be involved in the convention uh, and speaking roles mm-hmm. um but yeah i thought it was a little interesting i mean one of the bigger surprise speeching wise and i think her elevation has been really quick in the last few weeks has been kristin Noem and then of mm-hmm. uh, south dakota i mean she was before this a relatively unknown you know former house rep who nearly lost the governorship in 2018 to now being almost one of the biggest prominent uh Faces in the country of the Republican Party. So I think it's very interesting, the selection of people that
0: chose. Mm-hmm. That's definitely an interesting one. And she's one of the few governors that was at the convention. Um, one other thing I'd like to I'd like to go on is that the GOP has really kind of made a concerted effort to appear more friendly to women and minorities at this convention. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, many of the speakers, for example, are are of Hispanic descent. Uh, they had Catalina Lauf, who lost the primary, but she was a very notable. Um, you know, She was running from a Hispanic... Republican perspective. You've had other people show up as well, um, specifically, you know, Jeanette Nunez, uh, multiple attempts to appeal to Cubans, but also not only Tim Scott, but Daniel Cameron, who is widely considered to be uh, the successor to Mitch McConnell, whatever Mitch decides to hang it up. Uh, It's generally assumed that his protege, Daniel Cameron, will be the one to take over his Senate seat, which would be interesting, you know, being a black senator from a predominantly very white state in Kentucky. Um, It's, it's, like for me at least Herschel Walker, other people have all tried to present the image of a Republican party more friendly to minorities, you know, whether or not you <clears> agree <throat> with the rhetoric or the policy, they've at least been putting on the appearance of of trying to if you're friendly on that front uh,
2: yeah, I, they're planning for the future because I don't mm-hmm. think that approach works while Trump is the president, but mm-hmm. they're definitely planning for the post trump era,
0: yeah. Daniel Cameron is a much better voice for the future of her. Oh yeah. Nikki Haley. A, I, I do know how, how I forgot her, but yeah, she had a, the spotlight speech, even Kimberly Guilfoyle, who, whose speech was generally regarded as kind of a joke. Uh, I saw comparisons of her to the Power Rangers villain, Rita Repulsa. Mm-hmm. I saw, I saw a picture of her Photoshopped into a, General Hux from Star Wars, um, like even she, she, she was specifically noting her her Latina heritage, the fact she was her parents are from Puerto Rico, um, is very interesting. Because that's the one thing I got for the first night of watching this is they were really trying to emphasize minority voices within the party. Um, so that was just one thing I thought interesting about this convention. It certainly wasn't something they tried last time. Oh, um, yeah. Last time it was all about Trump, and I think an interesting thing I think with the future is I think a lot of
1: people inside the Republican Party have, I think are coming to a, a conclusion of uh, that it's much better for the party and I think whoever wins in 24, I, I'm not going to get into that, but I do think it's almost certain and of course I could be wrong on this, that it was probably the the one, someone on that ticket is either going to be a woman or a person of color.
0: I just I think, think a lot of... people disagree with that, but I uh, would agree with I, you I, personally. I,
2: I would disagree, but not strongly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could very well be right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, and it could be anyone on the ticket. I'm not saying you know it's a certain person. I mean, it could be. I could see. You know, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, uh, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, all being on that ticket, uh, it, or whatnot. And some of the wh- white male candidates, you I don't like to get into that type of stuff, may see it fit
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, to have a woman running mate if they're running against. Either Kamala Harris in 2024,
0: or, or whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2024, Trump will lose or win. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, I, I don't think it's necessarily a factor of Republicans who are just pushing every minority voice to the forefront. I think it's just a lot of these voices are actually genuinely compelling. It'll be far more compelling than someone like a Rick Scott or a Josh Hawley. Mm-hmm. Um, Nikki Haley is a far more compelling story than Josh Hawley does. Uh, Jeanette Nunez, who is Cuban uh, or is of Cuban descent has a much more compelling story than even Rick Scott would. Um, the, the Cuban, uh, um, the Cuban man that had, who had um, immigrated from Cuba far more compelling story than like some steelworker from the Midwest. If you really want to think of it that way. Um, it's just, it's definitely been interesting. And even they had a naturalization ceremony during the convention, which I think some people took issue with as a political stunt, but in terms of a visual appeal, it's pretty clear what their intent was. There is to make the Republican party appear more friendly to, to uh, minorities. Oh yeah. It was a blatant political stunt, but I think it was effective. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and again, this is, this happens all the time. I know people talk about, I know people talk talking about the hatch act, but you go back as recently as 2012. I think Obama had at least five or six cabinet officials actively speaking at the convention. Yeah. Like
2: no president <laughs> has ever cared about the hatch act. Yeah. Yeah. None of them.
0: Well, I was gonna, I'll, Yeah,
2: I'll
1: just say it's straightforward. The hatch cares at all for the hatch act if it's only when it's convenient
0: mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen anyone ever seriously as a matter of good faith go on about the hatch act personally um, but it is something to keep an eye obviously you're going to see those accusations but as far as I'm concerned uh, if, this, if the standard was the convention isn't a disaster I think they've met that standard with fairly flying colors um,
2: hey 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 Trump hasn't spoken yet
0: Correct. It could be different. Although he did speak the first night, he spoke for about an hour. So um, yeah,
2: give him time. He will make this a disaster. He's been there
0: every the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and from my personal perspective, I do agree with Pete that. I think uh, I think at least one of the two on the ticket in twenty twenty four will be either uh, will be either a woman or a minority candidate, and it's more than likely going to be the presidential selection. Not because again, not because necessarily of a I don't want to say a token thing, but not because of that, but because the Republican candidates, if you look at the actual list of Republican frontrunners for 2024, it's a very diverse group. It's not hard to see one sneaking through or to see a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott or or anyone else along that line being able to, to make a compelling case. It's just a matter of volume. Um, cause the, the, the fact of the matter is the rising stars in the Republican Party right now are generally not white men. Um, you have a few of them, but not many. Yeah. And I also think
1: you know, the people and like Tom Cotton, Mike, serious fought to maybe a woman, you know, because both those two nominees.
0: Oops. I, Sorry. I think we lost Pete there. His internet connection was kind of <laughs> getting a little bit iffy. Um, oh, good. We'll I try to get him perfect. back on in a maybe. second, but there he is. Yeah. Uh,
1: am I there? I, fi- I think I'm breaking yep. up.
0: Yeah, I think your connection was starting to fail there. Part of the problem with the Zoom meeting. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think. Uh, as I was saying, I don't know if people did hear it or not. Is I think even people like Tom Cotton or Mike Pence, other two 2024 nom- nominees, traditional white men, quote unquote. I think it's very good. <laughs> good in- <laughs> in- <laughs> in-
0: a yeah, I think you're still breaking up, Pete. Um, but I'll, I'll go to Dylan. Uh, any final thoughts on the convention before we move on to our next topic of the night? Uh, no. Yeah, so I think Pete's going to reconnect here in a minute. He's just been internet connection stuff, but... Uh, we're going to go into our next topic of that, which does actually kind of relate to the female candidates. One of the few races where Republicans really were vict- successful in female candidate recruitment was in Oklahoma's fifth congressional district. Uh, the two candidates in the runoff there for the Republican side were uh, Terry Neese, who's a businesswoman, and Stephanie Bice, who was a representative. Um, who's a represent? Oh, ab- apparently you're not breaking up at least on the on the YouTube end, Pete. Uh, Chris Bodger says you can you can't make it out. So. Um, yeah, so you're. Uh, if it keeps if it keeps going on, we'll have to correct that. But um, I was going into Oklahoma fifth, which was obviously had Stephanie Bice and uh, and Terry Niece, Um mm-hmm. two prominent Republican women candidates running in a in a competitive swing state against uh, Democrat Kendra Horn. Um, the primary was definitely interesting because the internal sources we had from the Bice campaign or from the Bice side of things um, were of the opinion this was that there were problems. Um, we heard stuff from the niece we, we heard stuff all around, basically that there were, there were issues. Um, and that this might not be particularly close, but the last week of the campaign was overall, um, really, really bad for Terry. Nee. she has three different scandals come out in a single week towards the end. Um, so you had the first one was of when she ran a company, um, she ran a business, uh, was a staffing firm and was apparently caught on tape Uh, telling her employees to lie and cheat their customers. Uh, Generally, not a good look. Uh, She accused the Vice campaign of leaking that, and the Vice campaign denied that. Or Stephanie Bice specifically denied that she was the one responsible. Then it came out that she wasn't actually Cherokee Indian. She claimed that she had a heritage in the Cherokee Nation, and had actually been appointed to Native American advisory boards on that claim, but she actually has no heritage in the Cherokee Nation as far as they know. Uh, And then finally, probably the most damaging one was of a charity that she ran uh, that the money was being funneled apparently back into herself and her business. Uh, Obviously, that's not great. She was self-funding her campaign. She had a lot of support from the Club for Growth who really didn't like Stephanie Bice, uh, her her legislative record. She had supported as a desperation measure um, raising taxes to increase teacher pay because the the schools literally were only operating like three or four days a week. Um, And ultimately, again, Stephanie Bice managed to win uh, the state by 53 to 47 margin win the district uh, Niesman put a lot of effort into winning those two <clears throat> rural counties. Uh, in hindsight, that effort seems to have been short-sighted given Stephanie Bice won on the strength of Oklahoma County, which accounted for some 90, 95% of the votes in the district. Um, So obviously her being from the county helped as well, but what are your thoughts on how this went? Uh, was this a surprise to see uh, her make a little comeback here and win uh, win that primary?
1: Uh, I think it was. I think a lot of people had sort of thought, you know, Bice was in trouble. Uh, you know, the runoff was going to be Terry niece's, you know, advantage (laughs) because of all the different things were happening. But yeah, I think it was a bit of a surprise, but, you know, credit to Stephanie Bice. She got what she needed out of Oklahoma County, which is where her Senate seat is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think for a lot of Republicans, there's a big sigh of relief that they got Mm -hmm. their A list candidate through.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. Rather than yes. Terry Niece, who was, yeah. even before all this stuff came out, was generally considered to be a subpar candidate. Yeah. Um, Bice actually finished 10 points behind her in the primary, the original primary. So to come back from 10 points down in, in, in the first primary and win uh, in the runoff is definitely impressive, I think, especially oh, in the is. turnout. This, this wasn't a low turnout race. There were al- almost, I think, fifty or 60,000 people turned out to vote, which mm-hmm. is pretty solid for a runoff as far as I know.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, she also won without really a lot of big endorsements from, you know, you know, big groups. Mm-hmm. I mean, Seventy Vice did not have the Chamber of Commerce, who just endorsed Kendra Horn today, ironically. Uh, she didn't have a lot of these other mega donors in the GOP. I mean, Terry Neese had the Club for Growth, and the Club for Growth, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you think of them, usually get their jobs on, on their candidates they endorse. Yeah, they spent almost
0: a million dollars yeah. on supporting uh, Terry Neese in the primary. Yeah.
1: A yeah, million dollars uh, gone. But no, she wins. And I think for a lot of Republicans now, they think they really have Kendra Horn now on the heels now with someone like Bice who can say, I'm a conservative, but I'm also pragmatic. I mean, you mentioned that she voted for a tax hike to fund Oklahoma City schools. I mean, mm-hmm. it may not be the greatest thing for certain voters, but it also says, look, she actually cares about her kids' education.
0: Yeah, and Kendra Horn's number one issue when she ran was education. This definitely kneecaps that because yeah. it doesn't get more uh, – it doesn't get more counterintuitive to the Republican Party than to raise taxes to fund teacher pay. Regardless of if it was a desperation move or not on the part of mm-hmm. the legislature, um, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot to attack her on there.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think the other point mm-hmm. is, and most people don't remember this, is – that seat, a lot of it flipped because of what had happened in the governor's race. Mary Fallon mm-hmm. was a very unpopular governor. I think the most unpopular governor in America when she left. And in that race, uh, I believe the Democrat was Anderson, right, who was running. Uh, Emerson, who was running on their side in 2018. And uh, Oklahoma, Edmondson. Edmondson, thank you. Uh, ran up his margins that what would be considered uh, Oklahoma 5 and a big chunk of that help to uh, – uh, Kendra Horn to get over the line against Steve Russell, with, of course, Russell being kind of, you know, so sleep at the wheel. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a key thing with the education point. Yeah, and, and I um,
0: definitely – one other thing to – or sorry, before Dylan um, – do you have something to say, Dylan? No, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, one other thing to point out is that both candidates, aside from Club for Growth, which spends a million dollars – both spent over a million dollars of their of uh, from their campaigns in this primary. So Terry Nies and Stephanie Bice, their campaigns spent over a million. Obviously, Terry Nies was self-funding the majority of this, whereas Stephanie Bice was this mainly came from fundraising. About a third of Terry Nies's money, at least as far as I can remember, uh, came from herself. Um, so obviously both of them were left with around eighty thousand dollars cash on hand, which isn't ideal. Um, but it's definitely doable for them to make up for that gap because it is a very Republican district, even even right now.
2: Yeah i I still think uh, Horn is probably favored, but not by
0: much. I would actually put aside from I think on Elections Daily. I think if you asked our team, the staff, who would be like a top three list of you know in trouble incumbents, it would be in order. It would be uh, Colin Peterson from Minnesota. And then way below that would be Kendra Horn and then uh, uh, Joe Cunningham in South Carolina, because both of those are just very, very red districts. Um, It will be interesting to see if Kendra Horn can continue the bipartisan appeal, because as Pete mentioned, she did run around eight points behind Drew Edmondson in the gubernatorial race. Um, But she proved to be a good campaigner last time. She has a a pretty substantial war chest, um, and it's obviously a district that's trending blue. The question is if she can win over enough Trump voters, assuming Trump wins the district. To uh, hold back a fairly, fairly moderate um, Republican advice.
1: Well, yeah, and just not to mention, you know, with, uh, you know, she just Kendra Horn she's got an endorsement from the Chamber of Commerce, which is very, mm-hmm. very rare for a Democrat to get that endorsement uh, mm-hmm. from the chamber. But, yeah, I think uh, right now my personal view is I have her as the third most endangered Democrat. Uh, I just think Brandeasy, uh from New York uh, just is in a much more dangerous situation than her. But yeah, I think she, uh, Horn's going to have to put up a fight. I mean, Vice is going to have, you know, Vice doesn't really have a lot of money now, but she's going to get a lot of Republican money coming her way now because she mm-hmm. has, she is the nominee and Republicans see that seat as a, you know, as a win seat. I mean, I don't want to sound like a cynic, but I mean, if Kendra Horn does win, it would be her last term anyway because of the redistricting that would happen in Oklahoma. But yeah, Republicans would like to take that win for themselves and what might be a, re- a myth here for, on the, the House side.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's one other thing to note here, obviously, is that uh, Republicans would have another reason to support Stephanie Weiss, which is that she's fairly young. She's only 46. Um, she's uh, she's someone who could easily be representing a seat like that in Oklahoma for a long time or possibly even going on to, for example, the Senate at some point in the future, uh, being that she's from a very large metropolitan area. So they have a very good interest in making sure that she is uh, well-positioned to, as mm-hmm. possible to flip the seat.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, and I mean, she is young, and a lot of Republicans do think she's a future candidate. I mean, she's a very, she's very appealing, has a good backstory. But yeah, I mean, be very good for her to win. And who knows, maybe I mean that seat is had. I mean, outside of Russell, the person before Russell is the current United States Senator James Langford.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, who knows? Maybe that's you know uh, she may rise up to higher office if she were to win that seat, as it's you know previous successors have done that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, uh, Lankford is actually fairly similar to Stephanie Bice on an ideological level. She uh, He's mm-hmm. conservative but also is amenable on some mm-hmm. other issues. He's not necessarily a firebrand like, like Senator Jim Info, for example.
1: <laughs> Snowball. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Which I think will be hilarious
1: considering the next topic I think we're breaking up later today on this show about uh, climate change <laughs> with a certain Senate race.
0: Oh, yeah, that – Yeah, we're at the so yeah, the final segment, of course, be going over later is the final week of the saga that is the Massachusetts uh, primaries. Um, Finally coming to a close, a liberal election Twitter can finally rest easy with one of the candidates having having won. Um, I think personally, I still think the more interesting race is whether or not the guy who claimed he invented email wins the Republican primary. But uh, (laughs) I'm probably alone in that opinion. I
2: still need to read into that. That
1: sounds too unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Oh oh it's not. He's even yeah, it, yeah. What
1: about this email? I, this is the first time I've been aware yeah, of this.
0: Uh, there yeah, he he's in uh he's Indian. Um uh master oh. Yeah, yeah, like oh, you think for, yes, say, I know
1: what we're talking about now.
0: Yeah, uh I I would probably butcher his name if I tried to pronounce it. Um but he's claimed to have invented the email. Um I'd probably get this wrong. Shiva uh Ayadurai. Um, Again, I probably butchered that. Apologies to any people who are watching if you want to correct it, but uh, he's running on the Republican side. He's claimed that that he invented the internet. He's claimed that uh, he's questioned genetically modified soybeans if they're safe. He's uh, basically been going on coronavirus conspiracy theories. He's talked about Anthony Fauci being part of the deep state. Sounds Um, like a hell of a guy. Yeah they to say I would not be voting for him if I lived in Massachusetts, obviously, but it wouldn't really matter at that point because it's Massachusetts.
2: He's but, uh, continuing the bipartisan legacy of Charlie Baker. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> moderate. so moderate. Well,
1: yep. Sure. Yes.
0: Yep. So uh, I guess we'll. I guess since we're already here, I guess we'll kind of go into Massachusetts. So uh, this has been kind of a roller coaster. Um, so. Yeah, so polling is now out in Massachusetts. A lot of polls have dropped last minute, and most of them have showed Ed Markey with some sort of lead over Joe Kennedy um, in the Senate race. Obviously, Ed Markey has a much more visible social media presence. Uh, I believe his memes are of subpar quality, but he does have memes, and Joe Kennedy doesn't. Um, people have thought there was kind of a Kennedy momentum swing in the last week or so, uh, given his family name. Some of the attacks have come from that front against him, but... Really seems to have gone the other way. It seems like Markey, uh, if these polls are right, has some sort of a, a lead around or over fifty percent, which is obviously enough to win uh, this primary. So, I guess, uh, what are your guys' thoughts going into this race? Are you excited to see it finally uh, conclude? Well, as yeah. I
1: yes. I'll let Dylan go first since I know he's you know following this much more for months and has had a lot of uh, fun commentary from all sides coming at after him and we're him having commentary to its So I'll get Dylan you can go first. <laughs>
2: um, man, Kennedy is a really bad campaigner. Uh, <laughs> to be down twelve points in Massachusetts when your last name is Kennedy to a guy not named Charlie Baker. Come on, how did this mm-hmm. happen? Uh, <laughs> He, I never bought that whole momentum switch. Um, the, the entirety of that momentum switch seemed to be based around Nancy Pelosi's endorsement and his letters complaining about Marky's memes being mean to him. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which a winning campaign doesn't complain about a dinosaur meme that says mm-hmm. fuck Kennedy. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't think we could say the word on this program without getting, uh, <laughs> or, getting or a, a mean about- of some sort. Yeah. yeah. yeah but That's funny. Um, yeah. He's gotten yes. a bit soft, I think, mm-hmm. over the course of this. Really, the, the family attack yeah. seem to have specifically really, really uh, affected Kennedy on a personal level. Um, but it doesn't seem like the voters seem logical. to be caring too much at the moment.
2: No. Uh, the whole. Marky attacking the Kennedy name was a really interesting choice that I never would have advised him to do, but it seems to have worked in his favor. Um, Mm -hmm. It threw threw Kennedy off his game enough where he's making very visible mistakes.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I people thought the initial response that that he had was fairly strong, talking about you know the legacy of the Kennedys and what his family had taught him. But in reality, it really seems to have. When you're running on basically your name, and your opponent's response is "Yeah, I hate your name. You guys suck," Uh, that (laughs) seems to be kind of a problem, right? Massachusetts. I know. Yeah, I think that's
1: the thing. I think Dylan has hit this correctly. Joe Kennedy has gotten soft. Joe Kennedy ran, and I and I say this again, because of one thing, he does not want to face Ariana Presley one v
2: one, and he fought.
1: Ironic, Presley. I apologize yep, to anyone who's watching. See, to, uh, <laughs> I apologize for the butchering per usual. That's my trademark here. Um, <laughs> but no, um, yeah, he ran on that to outflank her. Thought, let me go after this old senator who really kind of is not going to, re- he's going to probably run one more term at, with this being his last time. And I can win myself a Senate seat and start planning up a future run again. But the problem is, and it's ironic because his great uncle ran into this problem when he ran for president, Ted, in 1980. The infamous Roger Mudd interview asking Ted, why do you wanna be president? And Ted Kennedy couldn't answer the question. It seems the reverse has now happened to Joe in the sense of, why do you wanna run for the United States Senate? And Joe's (laughs) only response is, I'm a Kennedy. (laughs) <laughs> which I think I think, which most voters are like, okay, but why does that entitle you to run against, uh, for the most part, a fairly inoffensive senator? I mean, Mark, his only big claim right now is the Green New Deal. I don't like the Green New Deal, but a lot of people, it's something. Are, <laughs> it's something and uh, he actually has an idea. And uh, a lot of uh, Democrats, it seems, in, from Massachusetts polling, like the idea. But yeah, I mean Ted I mean Joe Kennedy has been very weak. I mean and the thing is Joe Kennedy started off with double digit leads. I mean, most the initial view was Joe Kennedy can't blow this race. This is a Kennedy. He's gonna win this race by since arguably June since July, when the Boston Globe said no, we're endorsing Markey, and then when Kennedy thought it'd be a great idea to mention Towns that haven't existed in 90 years uh, really have been a downhill. And, you know, this, these polls coming out this week are really, really a story. To have Markey on the either double digits ahead or on the verge of double digits is just something impossible to believe a few months ago because everyone thought mm-hmm. the Kennedy name will do it. And, yeah, Joe Kennedy has been weak when it comes to his name because his whole, you know, the last week he's been, my family, my family. Yeah, that's great, but to Ed Markey's credit, Markey has brought up the fact when he was in the state legislature, he was a reformist. When he was in the House, he got things done, Uh, and in the Senate, he has a very robust idea on climate change, but I think it's very, very interesting... um, Should Markey pull it off, and I think very – I would say it it, right now in the last week, I'd much rather be Ed Markey right now uh, with where this race is heading. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really a realignment, arguably, of Massachusetts politics uh, because a Kennedy losing a primary in Massachusetts, of all places, was something no one could have ever thought could happen to an unoffensive nobody in the Senate. Really – Uh, is something, you know, of a story. And I mean, it really also, if Kennedy loses this, his whole strategy will have blown up in his face. He wanted to outflank a rising star in the Democratic Party. Instead, he'll be out of a job, and she very well may just be the senator a year or two's time if Elizabeth Warren ends up in the cabinet under a Biden administration.
2: Yeah, that's the irony. He might have actually been able to get an open seat because... Yeah, he didn't want to run against Diana Presley, but I'm not convinced that if he ran for Warren's open seat, that Diana Presley would have challenged him. Mm-hmm. I- I'm not just on that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so
1: the irony. <laughs>
2: yeah he he banked it all on beating an unsuspecting, unoffensive kind of ghost of a senator, and it blew
0: up in his face. Yeah. Um, and I think what Marky has done is actually it's very clever that that attack on the Kennedys is that I think he was running on being a Kennedy without being explicit about it. It's not like he was out there like, oh, I'm a Kennedy, I'm a Kennedy, I'm a Kennedy. Uh, but after that attack, he's been going on that front the entire time. And I think that's backfired because basically he just got pushed into a corner of defend your name or or, or don't. And yeah. he defend his name now. And that's just bringing it to the forefront. That That's basically why he's running.
1: Right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the other great thing is Marky had an ad. You know, well, Kennedy is running about his name. Marky talks about he's the son of Irish, you know, I think immigrants or a second generation Irish immigrants in Boston, you know, who worked his way up in, in the American ladder. Then you have Joe Kennedy, basically saying, "Yeah, I'm the son. I'm from the Kennedy family." Really tells voters, "Look, there's the guy who, you know, has worked his way life and has made the American story, and here's the guy." who's running just because his family thinks they're inherited, they're entitled to a seat. It really is night and day, really, on how they run. And I, I'm no fan of Marquis. I'll make it very clear. But Markey has run an excellent campaign of humanizing himself and also putting him front as a the issues man for a potential democratic government that may be arriving in January 21.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, I completely agree. And this... <laughs> is kind of the end of the dynasty if he loses. Um uh, Amy Kennedy could still beat Jeff Van Drew, but mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of upward mobility from there.
1: Yeah. And it would be really embarrassing if let's say Amy Kennedy wins in Jersey. Yeah, that's great. But the family's home, Massachusetts, basically saying, yeah, we're done with the Kennedys. Sorry, uh for the time being is really, really a big blow to the family's, you know, power, and it would also, ironically, and would be the second dynasty family to run into a loss this year. People forget George, the the George W. Bush's nephew or cousin—I or don't know which one—Pierce Bush uh, lost his primary in Texas.
2: Did just? Wait,
1: I thought he won. No, he lost his primary. Wow. Oh. He didn't get. He didn't get into the runoff. He didn't even get into the <laughs> runoff. Bush,
0: yeah. In the twenty second district, yeah. The twenty second,
1: oh, Troy, Troy Nichols and
0: uh, won that, and yeah, that was Man, a Bush. This is
2: a way better year than I thought it. Was.
0: And then also, <laughs> you had Corey Bush beating Lacey Clay, ending the Clay dynasty in, in yeah. St. Louis. Yeah. So three yeah. dynasties very much could be put to
1: rest in one, you know, singular. To be fair, on the Bush end, you know, there's still you know uh, the kid who's uh, the Texas Rail Commissioner who's still is there. So in case anyone you know would like to retaliate back on that comment, but yeah. We've seen, it's very possible a lot of dynasties this year, three dynasties are put on ice. What a a good year. (laughs) You wouldn't have expected it yet. Yeah.
2: Um.
1: And I think the other uh, situation, I think while Eric is gone for the time being up, (laughs) uh, we can mention the uh, mess that is a a certain Massachusetts primary. And that's the primary between congressmen and, Richard Neal, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, and his challenger, Alex Morse, who has been in a very, mm-hmm. you know, contentious waters with allegations that he had inappropriate relations with students. But then there was a flip side college Democrats of University of Massachusetts Amherst were setting it up, which has been a whole nasty mess. So we'll first mm-hmm. go to Eric on the at race in general and what he thinks is going to happen. Yes, yeah,
0: it's, uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely heated up. It seems like actually that if you look at the polls that have come out, again, Richard Neal seems to have a slight lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually got kind of a late boost, oddly enough, from the governor <laughs> of of Massachusetts, uh, Charlie Baker, who endorsed him. And you might be like, oh, mm-hmm. a Republican endorsed a Democrat in a primary. That must be the end of him. But Charlie Baker is extraordinarily popular in Massachusetts among Democrats. I think it's something along on the lines of 80 or 90 percent favorability. 89 percent. Yeah, this is actually a good endorsement for Richard yeah. Neal. Um, It could get people, you know, unaffiliated voters to turn out. Yeah, this is a larger point, but I actually
2: question how much most endorsements help. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No matter how popular someone is, I find it hard to see how many votes it'll sway, especially in a situation like this, where I would imagine at least a third of the voters, if not maybe half, have already voted. Yeah. It's only mm-hmm. four, we're only four days out. Um, so I don't know how much this vote will, uh, this endorsement will help, but Neil does have a slight lead, honestly, a far smaller lead than I thought he would have had.
1: Wait, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. I think there was a poll out today. that said it was up by nine. Obviously these polls should be treated with caution, uh, pretty usual, but yeah, I think it's interesting. I think Neil is obvious. I think the front runner, but, uh, um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, Alex Morse is really in an interesting situation. I mean, you know, we—I don't want to get involved in this whole mess because I genuinely don't want to be on the intercepts front page tomorrow morning about you know uh, someone in a certain media outlet you know being decaying him. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'll keep my comments to myself on the intercept. But yeah, I think Morse is an I think he has a chance. The question is, how much does this scandal, whatever you think of it come back to bite him in the end minds of voters who say, maybe this isn't the type of God we want in our um, seat. Mm-hmm. If
2: I actually, whether it's right or wrong, I don't think the scandal is going to hurt him as much as maybe it should, or we thought it would have. It's um, fair enough. It seems to have been muddied enough that most voters can just say, eh, who really knows? Because I mean, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, everyone looks bad in that. Morse looks bad. Everyone looks bad. Oh, yeah. And it's, I, brought, yeah. it's, it's brought him a lot of money. So it might've actually helped him more than it hurt him. Oh. Um, but just something that came to my mind earlier today that I wanted to bring up, um, even if Morse doesn't win, I'm not saying he'd be running again, but he could be well-positioned to run for a vacant Warren seat. Um, sure. He's, sure. A, he's a popular mayor on the left. Um, he's going to come within, I, I'm going to predict he's going to come within five. I think he's going to be within that like 46 mm-hmm. to 48% margin. Um, and that would position him well, I think. But I, I still expect Neil to win.
1: Yeah, I think it's possible. I'm a little more confident, but I probably would go fifty forty four for Neil r- right now. But then that, again, that's just my prediction. It could be wrong, of course.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. Think I- regardless of what what goes on, I think re- I think Alex Morse made a lot more inroads than people thought yeah. he would. The question is whether or not it goes into this final week. Obviously, and, and we one fact that might actually help time. help <laughs> Richard Neil here is that the district actually isn't progressive as isn't as progressive as it could be. Um, it oh, actually yeah. re- absorbs a lot of Republican-leaning areas with a lot of unaffiliated voters that could turn out in a primary for someone like Richard Neal that wouldn't want Alex Morse representing him. Um, we have, sorry.
2: We have seen this really weird thing where Republican voters seem to support the more progressive candidate almost as a yeah. protest. Yeah. Saw that well, with you
0: Cameron. saw that in California, right? But that was mainly because Diane Feinstein was the right. one who led the Kavanaugh charge. That was oh. mainly the main reason there. But we also, uh-huh.
2: saw, But we also saw that with Bernie. Uh, in the 2016 oh, yeah. Democratic primaries. Yeah, conservative but Democrats.
1: that was also because Republicans fought, whether whether that was true or not, that Bernie was going to be the weaker candidate in the general. So they thought let's, you know, rat. I can't say the other rat's part, but <laughs> in the Democratic primary. But I think on that point, though, it is interesting. I mean, he is he lost his primary this time around because of presidential turnout. But Dan Lipinski in 2018 arguably was saved by Republican voters in his seat decided to go out and vote for him because their Republican nominee was effectively a neo-Nazi. Yes, he was people. So Mm -hmm. send me the mail saying I'm being, uh, I'm over exaggerating here. The Republican nominee in that seat was one. So that, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I still think Neil survives just because he's been there for a long time in the seat. And he's also the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And that just brings a lot of power to his constituents with having a, you know, a chair. Obviously that doesn't mean much as it used to because of earmarks being a thing of the past for now, but yeah, I think he who wins just on connections with the mm-hmm. district. Also, just a quick political point, uh, if Neil were to lose the next person in line for the House Ways and Means Committee would be Lloyd Doggett of Texas, in case anyone was interested in that.
2: Which back. would be a significant improvement.
1: Well, yes, Doggett is much more progressive than Richard Neal is. Because of the, their overall – since Neagle historically has been a social con, historically.
0: Not, I would say a social conservative, definitely more of a moderate than – Moderate more, the, more in the Stephen Lynch camp. Yeah, more in the Stephen yeah. Lynch camp of yeah. –
1: Social con yeah. for democratic ways. so Let me yeah. rephrase yeah. that. Yeah, by yeah.
0: democratic standards. Yes. And standards. I would just
2: call him a full-on moderate. He's not all that progressive on a lot of economic areas, yeah. but regardless –
1: uh, and I assume, Dylan, one of your main quarrels with him was has uh, been the blocking of a lot of progressive legislation via his committee.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the only reason to target him. He's, <laughs> a, a, if he wasn't a committee chair, he's a fairly generic Democrat.
0: Yeah.
1: No, just asking since, you know, people, you yeah. know, uh, on the left have different me- reasons for wanting to primary incumbent. Some is just out of opportunism, and others is just genuine conviction politics.
0: Yeah. But, uh, of course, we'll be following this race as it continues. We'll be keeping you updated on our Twitter account, and I think we'll probably be doing a live stream that night. I'm not sure. Uh, it's, it's more than it's more than one race this time, but we'll, I think there's definitely an audience for that. So okay, uh, definitely, stay tuned, yeah. definitely stay tuned to Elections Daily, uh, at Elections Daily on Twitter where you can find our updates there. You're obviously watching this channel or listening to this on a podcast platform, so thank you for doing that. Uh, with that, I think we're probably going to wrap up this week's uh, episode of Elections Weekly. So, uh, where can we find you guys on social media?
1: Uh, ooh, I forgot to put mine today, but you can follow yeah. me at Classicone Robert. I apologize for not putting it today. I was just rushing from a class. But uh, yeah, Glassicone uh, Robert, uh, known as Lord Chancellor.
2: Uh, you can find me at Dylan B. Wade on Twitter, obviously, and my podcast, Popcorn Politics. On ocelli.com, Tuesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: And also, occasionally
0: I pop in, and so other people pop in on that program. So it's a good listen.
1: And also, uh, tomorrow there's the World Tonight for those who have watched that. And if you haven't, it's a great program with me and Animal Wellness. It's a 5 p.m. where we discuss the politics of the international globe. We have a very loaded show for tomorrow. So please do come and watch.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, thank you all for watching. Uh, Be sure to subscribe or like us or give us five stars, depending on the platform you're on, if you haven't already. So, uh, yeah, so with that, we'll end this episode. Uh, Thanks for watching, and we'll see you guys on next week's episode of Elections Weekly.
2: Good night. Mm -hmm. Yep. Good night.